Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield and this is a podcast about how we talk to people who are different from ourselves and the things that we hold sacred, hold dear and cherish. In this episode, I had a conversation with Benjamin Ram. He's a writer and a journalist for, among others, the BBC, the New York Times and Open Democracy. He's a former editor of the Liberal magazine. He describes himself variously as a Jewish humanist atheist who loves going to Russian Orthodox mass. We spoke about disagreeing with Tim Farron's recent Theos annual lecture and his own vision for liberalism, his sacred value of human connectedness and how new atheism was a real moment of disillusionment. He talks about an arid public square devoid of the sacred and how perhaps poetry and the arts and literature and the sublime might be a replacement. I first met Benjamin a few months ago and we had a really wide-ranging conversation like the one you'll hear today, which really left my brain fizzing and sent me back to look up the quotes and read lots of William Blake. So I really hope you enjoy meeting him podcast style. He's a big gesticulator. So uh, despite all the table bangs as he gets very passionate, I really hope you enjoy it. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming to talk to me. As you know, these podcasts are really about how we talk to people who are different from ourselves, who see the world differently from us. And as part of that, I'm really interested in this idea of the sacred, uh, not necessarily in terms of, you know, places of pilgrimage, but the things that are very dear to our hearts that we react um, strongly to when we feel that they're under threat. Scott Atran in his book, Talking to the Enemy, defines these sacred values as the thing that if someone offered you money, to give up would make you less likely to give it up. You would be deeply insulted. You know, you're not a rational economic actor around the things that you hold sacred. You're not maximising your utility. There's something else going on there. And I think being more honest about the things we hold sacred, being a bit personal about those, trying to understand what other people hold sacred might en- enable us to have more human, more emotionally intelligent conversations. What do you hold sacred? Thank you for inviting me on. And thank you also for using the word sacred. I think it's very important. And I think it's really intriguing and quite revealing that you frame it in the terms of the dominant sort of zeitgeist of the culture, which is economic man, rationalisation, um, and that that the religious space, uh, like the sort of radical civic space, is a place where there is a possibility of unconditional love. So um, w- we are used in the public sphere to framing almost all of our interactions in conditional terms. Mm-hmm. We give something, we get something back or vice versa. And that space for unconditional love is a space for the sacred. And that might be um, a communion. And it's interesting that I, I had a fascinating conversation with you uh, a couple of months ago and you use religious terminology and then sort of said, but we don't have to necessarily speak about it in a religious space. But I'm very keen to, I really like the idea of talking about a pilgrimage. And yes, it doesn't have to be a pilgrimage into a cathedral. Although as a Jewish humanist, there's nothing more than I love is a pilgrimage into the cathedral. Um, a Russian Orthodox Mass uh, went to last two weeks ago. It was absolutely fascinating. Um, but uh, And we spoke about temples of meaning and I'm very keen that in an arid civic space in which um, there is almost, a, 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 I don't want to say because the Adam Smith Institute would like me to talk about Adam Smith, but I would say it's a parody of his thought, this parody of, of, of hard, cold, enlightenment thinking. Um, 
that that you are looking for a space in which the radical humanistic imagination can be nurtured. And that is, I guess, that's a sort of very circumlocutory way of saying to that's what I hold sacred. I'm interested in um, senses of dignity, of integrity. So I don't want to just speak about the person without speaking about the civic. Um, I'm really keen on sort of notions of communion. And that can be in a spiritual sense as well, despite being an atheist. I'm very keen to, um, I think that that there is so much that particularly disestablishment churches or disestablishment religions can tell us about what it means to have an unconditional relationship with one another. Is that what you mean by communion? Yeah, I guess that is sort of what I mean by communion. I think that we had a conversation a while ago where I said that this is an incredible opportunity in the religious space to try and uh, fill the remarkable gaping holes that political and even cultural leaders have left. And I, it's interesting, We just in our introduction, you sort of prefaced it by talking about um, how our our differences are personally and deeply felt. And I guess I'm interested in a space whereby we can express ourselves sincerely and honestly, yeah. um, including our religious convictions. Yeah. Or irreligious convictions. Or, or irreligious convictions. I was thinking of a quote uh, last time I saw you, like a sort of enthusiastic undergrad, I relentlessly quoted William Blake to But as he was quite formative in my thinking, when you were talking about difference, I had one idea that constantly I, I, I sort of go around in my head, and it's this quote, truth can never be told uh, so as to be understood and not to be believed. And we're in this strange situation, I think, with religions at the moment where we ask people to understand all sorts of different things, but we don't want them to believe it too fervently. We're very scared of that type of conviction and that type of integrity. And maybe one of the spaces of the sacred has to be, I want to be in the civic sphere. I want to hold my value sincerely. I don't want to be disingenuous. But I also understand that my space is only one small part and that I have a duty. And here I would come back to work I've done as on sort of civic commitment and, and yeah. civic idealism, you know, and this obviously sort of segues into what Tim Farron was talking about and and how he he almost got to something quite interesting. Well, he did get something quite interesting, but he almost uh, threaded uh, a, a, an argument. I'm going to come on to Tim Farron in a minute, but I'm going to challenge you okay, to be a bit more personal okay, okay. Uh, because I do feel like those of us who love thinking and reading and, and analysing can retreat from uh, some of the most unsettling big moral questions mm. into kind of analyst mode Mm. so let's just stay with what you said is sacred to you Mm. um communion you said uh a civic humanism Uh, the word analyst mode really uh i'm really uncomfortable with i'm really uncomfortable with this notion that the intellectual and the personal are disassociated and that what i feel so i did a piece um on uh i I was uh, in these couple of weeks ago and i dragged my girlfriend to a russian orthodox communion it was it was sort of immensely um uh sort of I'm personally enriching and sort of culturally curious, but but one of the reasons why I'm so keen to visit cathedrals and to see, I did a piece for, for the New York Times from Shah, um, that and there was something remarkable about looking at the way in which we interact with a building that symbolised sort of notions of universal truth, community togetherness, um, a sense of the sublime, and the way in which we we interact with that through an image of ruins, like our, our attitude towards the religious is now a sublime ruin. And how can we take from the ruins and find something in there in which we understand to, to have integrity and sort of recuperate that? So I'm interested in 
in recuperation. And now you're thinking, Ben, you're not talking about the person. You're just sort of intellectually uh, analyzing this. But I'm really uncomfortable with this idea that I'm going to, that the mind and the senses are separate because that sense of awe that I, that you have when you walk into Chartres, um, and and it is really a, a, the the stained glass is really and I have a friend who said that he he once described that he went into a cathedral with with his non with his atheist partner and he felt that the sense of sublime that he felt could not be matched by hers and I don't think that's true at all I think I mean it depends who you are you know he might be saying something about him but like there was, there's a there was a I still think there's a, there's a remarkable sort of spiritual and aesthetic unity that that uh can be attained um from that form of communion even if i know i'm extracting it from its original christian connotations yeah that slight banging you can hear is benjamin pounding the table yeah. in his emotional um uh, emotional and rational fervor. connected fervor the 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 intertwined a few weeks ago, uh, well, just before Christmas, really, we had Tim Farron on the podcast yeah. and he came to speak following his Theos Annual Lecture. And Theos Annual Lecture is a slightly funny beast in that we invite, you know, we've done them for 10 years and we invited people from a extremely wide range of perspectives and disciplines to talk broadly on the theme of religion in public life. And we never quite know what they're going to say when they turn up. It's the ultimate moment of the year where I feel out of control. Um, but it was a fascinating lecture about the place of, um, well, the, the current state of liberalism and what the role of religious perspectives might be in that and really why he's a liberal drawing on his theology. Um, and certainly our Christian listeners and the Christians who are very connected to Theos, I think, felt very encouraged by it. Uh, someone spelling out something that a lot of people had felt. Other people reacted strongly um, to obviously his perceived position on sexuality or, you know, the people who are anti-liberal reacted to that. So we've had some really wonderful back and forth about various parts of the speech. I'd love to hear what you think as someone who used to edit a magazine called The Liberal. And was wheeled out to often uh, critique Lib Dem leaders. I mean, I think um, I commend his ambition. I think that where he was really interesting wasn't about liberalism. I think it was really interesting about Christianity. So he, where I said he threatened to say something very intriguing is there is obviously a thread about the status of a once marginal creed that became a dominant ideology and in that process lost some of its spiritual, intellectual um, and moral sort of integrity. As you've not read it, that's uh, Tim referring to the Constantinian moment where the kind of underdog Christianity became an empire-led movement. So like a 19th century nonconformist radical, Tim is very good on the errors of establishment. But the establishment he's good at critiquing is not liberalism. The establishment he's good at critiquing is Christianity. And I think that what's a shame is that Tim gave a lecture on liberalism, which ended up being, I think, quite incoherent stuff about British values. I'll come on to it in a moment. Uh, but the stuff on Christianity was really good. Um, and he's absolutely right. And look, I, you know, it's a broad church, pun intended, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go there. But I, but, but I think think um so one thing i wanted to say when people were tweeting about you know anger some understandable about some of his comments and it was obviously very awkward for people who care about liberalism and care about not even theology public notions of religion to have every newsreader corner him on it and it was clear the person who i blame is not i think 
producers and and news editors had a duty to do that to a certain extent. I actually blame his um, strategy team for not coming up with a more coherent response. Um, now, there's a debate about whether you could do what Gladstone did in 1891. Gladstone opposed Welsh disestablishment, but he he was he agreed to vote for it because he understood that it was a liberal policy. Personally, he opposed it. Now, whether you can do that in the more personal age whereby we seek this transparency yeah. is a debatable matter, but that would have given him an opportunity to say, look, the essence of liberalism, whether you like it or not, is acknowledging that there's a division between a civic and a personal sense. That division doesn't have to be attention, but the very nature of liberal democracy is understanding that there are some things that you give onto the public space yeah. and there are some things that you nurture in your heart now this wasn't a problem for a lot of nonconformist radicals and where I take issue to him is that he says it's not possible to be a modern liberal anymore because I think liberals have always I don't want to say struggle they've always actually often profited from that tension mm-hmm. um, Tim's issue was whether he can be a scriptural evangelical Christian. Whether he could say, I personally don't believe in homosexuality or, you know, whatever, however you want to pass those words, but I will vote for, as he apparently has done in his voting record for the, you know, the freedom of other people to make those choices. I think that's what he was trying to say in the speech. Yeah, so the speech ended up being, I think, because he liked rhetorically, it was obviously often an opportunity to to sort of chastise. I mean, there's a bit of a straw man here about who the public sphere is. Um, And... He said, so just on the British values thing, he said, I'm a liberal in economic terms. I'm a moderate social democrat. I believe climate change is real and I want to stop it. So I'm agreeing with everything here. Uh, I'm a patriotic Englishman. Okay. (laughs) But I'm also passionate European internationalist. I'm a Bible believing Christian who seeks to live obediently to God and who actively supports the freedom of everyone to either choose or reject that. That sums up my values. Are we seriously saying they are shared by the majority of British people? To which my response is, well, no, not necessarily. But firstly, that isn't the civic compact. Secondly, if you want identical values, then you aren't a liberal you're a communitarian and the place he belongs I don't want to sort of tack fear Tim Farron here but the place he belongs is not within liberalism it's it's blue labour I mean it's that sort of ide- like I- identical a, a sense of a community that shares all of its values but again even that blue labour image of what the working class once was I think is disingenuous and reactionary conservative we have to be very careful of that liberalism at its high point has been able to provide a coherent civic vision in which there are shared values, there is room for diversity. Um, and what upsets me about Farron's rubbishing of the achievements of liberalism is that it takes a notion of the liberal elite from either the far left or the far right, and it accepts it as given. And actually, yes, there are failures in the civic combat, particularly in Britain. I mean, Brexit is really exposing them. But I don't want to dismiss the achievements of um, constitutional republicanism or constitutional liberalism. And if we have failed to add onto those dusty documents a sort of breathing image of what it means to be together in the public sphere, particularly in an age in which capitalism is so dominant, in part because liberals have allowed it to be, then I think that's our failure. I mean, what I would say, this, sorry, finally, just to add one point onto that, where religious Christian liberals were so important to the liberal movement and were so visionary and actually were historically vindicated was in the late 19th century where the division that you see now, we published an article, one of the last articles published at the Liberal was an article called the Neoliberal Democrat that argued that the Liberal Democrats had not understood that 
um, rather than there being social liberalism and economic liberalism, this was a false mm-hmm. dichotomy created yeah. by the Orange Book liberals. Right. And our argument is the Orange Book liberals weren't were basically taking a notion of economic liberalism, um, removing it from its original context. So yeah. taking Adam Smith and removing the moral sentiments of Adam Smith, yeah. which he would have found very very strange, and um, presenting liberalism as a form of neoliberalism. Yeah. The, the, the Liberal Party had always been a social liberal party, um, and actually, late class, you see this in late class, and you see this in 1891, where he, where you know he's he's. Uh, uh, embracing the trade union movement and actually the people who were pushing Gladstone to do that they were always more conservative elements were the Unitarians were the Methodists were the Nonconformists yeah. and that where Tim is there is a proud tradition of of Christianity bringing the best out of liberalism and liberal democracy is in that moment of saying the role of Christian liberals or liberal Christians is to is to push liberal democracy to, to challenge the excesses of what I would call neo, or what others call yeah. neoliberalism. I wonder if there's a parallel here, and forgive me because obviously my understanding of the history of liberalism is uh, patchy in the extreme in comparison, but I, we often come back to it, Theos, um, this distinction that Rowan William makes about secularism, and he distinguishes between programmatic secularism and procedural secularism. Procedural as holding open the space for a diversity of views um, and no kind of you know state-sponsored religion, and programmatic as an active pushing out of religious voices in favour of an actively secular space. And I wonder, actually, in lots of ways we're talking about a similar thing with liberalism. I think the distinction that lots of us get confused about... Um, about liberalism is does it mean you have to sign up to liberal policies or does it mean you defend the right of others to hold views different from yourself? I think it's very interesting. I mean, look, uh, just on the sort of pragmatics of this, because I think there was a bit of disingenuousness from Farron. I mean, I don't want to suggest that he was resigning in part because of an unfortunate election result, but clearly, um, clearly there was... If you're going to be leader of a party that made... LGBT values an important part of its stance and succeeded my god like you know would uh, gay marriage have been pushed through without liberal petitioning on this for 20 years probably not or actually for less than 20 years but from activists certainly I mean I think I think that liberalism is intriguing in its relationship with leaders and not much has been written about uh, liberals and leadership because you would clearly there is a bit of a tension between what grassroots activists who within the Liberal Party and within the Social Democrats have always been quite strong and guidance from their leader. But we, you know, this was something that had been touted with Farron for a long time. And I'm a little surprised that when the issue came up, um, there was such a degree of defensiveness. And again, I would suggest that's not really about liberalism, that's about Christianity. That's That's about whether evangelical Christianity can find a place in the modern world in which it it offers a vision rather than a re- rather than a reaction. Now, I'm not even a joke Christian. It's not for me to answer that. Mm. But I, but I, again, I'm not sure that's about liberalism. So, I think it was very interesting to watch, and I was on maternity leave at the time, so a lot of it sort of passed me by. But various people commented that watching Tim Farron was was like watching someone have a spiritual crisis live on air, and that was what was so uncomfortable. And what I think part of what was going on was a clash of the sacred. Was the fact that. Um, LGBT plus equality is for large sections of the population a sacred value, is an obviously powerfully good thing. For Christians, it's not that the opposite of that is a sacred value. It's that particularly for evangelical Christians, reformed Christians, you know, the the particular part of the church that Tim has been nurtured in, the Bible is the sacred value and your ability to be faithful to a text and be 
to humble yourself under it because you have a kind of radical self-scepticism about your own ability to, you know, to know truth and therefore you seek uh, a higher authority. It was, you know, it's what comes through in the scientific method and Francis Bacon. It's, it's you know, we are fallen and flawed and therefore we need, uh, you know, th- there's an interesting anthropology there. So the sacred value of faithful to scripture, which, by the way, when someone says a Bible-believing Christian, I find that phrase quite difficult because I sort of want to say, if you're a Christian, I'm assuming you believe the Bible, I want to know how you read it. And that is, I think, you know... And the, the, which, I mean, which part are you reading? Yeah, and, and what's your hermeneutic? So, exactly. you know, Christians have to wrestle with the fact that some very difficult verses in the Bible about lots of things, but about sexuality. So anyway, so ta- I think Tim Farron's sacred value, although it's not necessarily what he said when I asked him, he said Jesus Christ, which is a broader thing. Uh, you know, his, his sacred value, I would argue, is, is him not putting... current cultural mores ahead of what scripture says and wider society says no our sacred value is lgbt equality and if you cannot say hand on heart personally that you also think that is you know then then so my question for you is to be more personal is as would you still you'd still call yourself a liberal you wouldn't necessarily call yourself a liberal democrat I'm probably I'm actually he calls himself a moderate social democrat. I probably call yeah i'm i'm a i'm a social democrat i'm probably a more progressive social but i'm a social democrat so had he had he said Yes, I don't believe in gay marriage. However, I will vote for the rights of LGBT people um, to have full equality. Would that have been a problem for you in voting for him if you were in his constituency? Um, no, I mean, I just... Look, I think this thing... He says he, he he's, he's a scriptural evangelical but actually he's more interested in jesus christ i mean i don't want to get into like you know the betrayal of paul of the radical message of jesus but like which jesus christ are you reading and i don't know we were i we were i was having a fascinating conversation uh, on someone was you know roy moore he was quoting about sodom and gomorrah and you just said you know which which text are you reading sodom and gomorrah is about is it, it's a, a it's a hospitality exactly it's about our age but it's nothing to do with homosexuality it's about neoliberal capitalism contempt for the poor, the burning of someone who dares to give to the poor because she doesn't heed the argument that they'll spend the money badly, that the wealth trickles down. So, I mean, as always, as as in 17th century millenarianism, you know, the great thing about these canonical texts is they're so hermeneutically rich, as you say, and that's why I think you're, you know, the possibilities for theos are so, are so exciting. I, I'm not going to give Tim Farron, you know, biblical scriptural authority. He's not a pastor. If he wants to preach to me, fine, we'll have a discussion. I'm not going to have the leader of the Liberal Democrats say this is what the Bible says and this is what liberalism says and the two are irreconcilable because he's not just dishonest about liberalism I think he's dishonest about the Bible now he's going to be really no, upset maybe we should get <laughs> no I don't I'm not sure you do that but what I, what I would say is if he wants to be about Jesus I'm quite I've been thinking quite a lot about love in the public sphere and um, I wonder whether a more interesting way of speaking about gay rights and about the other challenges that uh, come up from, you know, this sort of framing is to think a bit more about the benefits of love in the public sphere, compassion, forgiveness, forbearance, and also actually the challenges and why love might not be a good framework for the public sphere. So what are the values of, you know, impulsiveness, obsessiveness, um, uh, subjectivity, you know, what I love, you might not love. And if I love something, I find it difficult to fathom how you might not love it. And therefore that creates an intolerance. But I think we need to think more sincerely about why love is both a positive and a potentially challenging framework. 
We're going to take a short break now to catch up with what is going on with the Theos team. I'm here in the Theos office with my wonderful colleague, Paul Bickley. Paul, tell me what you're working on. Uh, Hello, Liz. Um, At the minute, I'm working on a project uh, which looks at the issue of resilience, specifically in the northeast of England. Uh, So it's really asking, um, in the light of what has been, I think, uh, a a significant upswing in in terms of church-based social action and uh, engagement uh, is really asking uh, how uh, how effective it is, uh, whether churches are doing the right kinds of things, uh, whether they're spending their time, their money, their resources uh, on the uh, on things that will sustain communities or on things which ultimately don't uh, don't don't resolve problems. So I think it's uh, uh, it's a it's no longer a question for most faith based organizations networks communities uh, it's no longer they're no, no longer asking whether they should serve their community or uh, seek to help the poor the vulnerable um, uh, that that question has gone the question is how uh, so this this moves from uh, the, the kind of why and the what those those questions are answered more thinking in terms of the how and what's the best thing to do in particularly in a in a region like the northeast which is uh, struggling certainly in some respects uh, economically and is, is falling behind the rest of the country and what got you interested specifically in resilience? Well, I think it's part of Theos's uh, journey on this uh, process of really thinking more and more about, uh, in, in the terms of our 10-year anniversary report, how doing God looks like doing good, uh, and that uh, uh, amongst churches and other uh, faith uh, networks, there has been a significant uh, kind of upward tick uh, over the, certainly over the last 10 years. So that some many of the issues that confronted us in terms of Theos's work uh, 10 years ago they're still there they're still important uh that whole should we do god uh question is still there but it's exercised uh more and more on that question of what uh faith-based organizations do in in the public environment how they're uh how they're engaging with others how, uh, the kinds of things that they're good at doing and, uh, and we've focused more of our research energy on that and this is just really another way of looking at that and i think for me it's sort of um uh, I, I never said this to anybody uh but you'll forgive me uh it's it's kind of the third part in a trilogy so we did a piece of work on proselytism and, the, and the, called the problem of proselytism and thinking about how that was uh, a real barrier to uh, greater and great engagement amongst faith-based institutions. To clarify, not that proselytism is happening, but our anxiety yes. around proselytism. Yeah. Yeah, that 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 the people were really just uh, uh, very fearful of working with faith-based institutions because they felt that there might be an agenda there. And we were thinking about ask, asking that question in an open way and uh, really uh, suggesting that there isn't uh, a problem with that, and that's a problem to do with perceptions, not reality. Uh, and the second pe- uh, the second piece of this alleged uh, t- trilogy was on social innovation, uh, uh, asking really similar questions about whether uh, faith-based institutions are. Um, adjusting to a new reality which i think looks like a receding welfare state or or whether we're basically doing the same uh things we were doing uh 20 30 years ago uh and this uh, this is uh but this is to look at it i suppose in a specific uh, uh, in a specific regional context uh and also uh very much more in a sort of congregational uh context and thinking mainly about uh, about church-based social action here and there this there's uh three case studies with uh, action research in the northeast um and that that will be the kind of primary research that the uh, that the project focuses on. Paul, we look forward to reading it. And now back to our conversation with Benjamin Ram. 
we first connected, I think, on Twitter in the wonderful way that Twitter um, facilitates. And you, you were writing beautifully about Ingmar Bergman, the filmmaker, and, and Christian humanism. And if, if, if you're a film buff, go and, go and check out um, Benjamin's work. Um, and I'm fascinated because I've read uh, uh, some of what you've written and I've spoken to you and you seem to be one of the most theologically literate people who would not call themselves a Christian that I know. So I'd love to hear a bit about your childhood, uh, what were the formative influences there, kind of philosophically and religiously? Uh, well, actually, I mean, so I grew up, my mother's Persian Jewish and my father comes from a long line of uh, 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 Russian rabbis, but my father's completely uh, non-religious and my mother is traditional uh, without necessarily being... I mean, she's quite observant, but I didn't grow up in a particularly theologically um, engaged family. I think that... Um, I wonder whether... I, I guess it was a lot of stuff that I was reading at university, but also... What did you read at university? Uh, English literature. Um, I, I think also I, I got very excited about... And here, I know you want to be personal here, and I, you don't want me to speak about Victorianism Victorian Matthew Arnold but like it's personal I, to you exactly one of the texts that certainly like if you talk about the crisis of the sacred and the arid emptiness of the public sphere at the moment certainly when I was growing up one of the things that that connected with me was was the sort of transcendental power of art and and I know it seems absurdly uh, antiquarian and sincere to say I think there's something in in Matthew Arnold's sort of thesis that that art it can't fill all of the space left by religion but actually in terms of talking about sacredness in terms of talking about human possibility in terms of talking about tenderness and beauty and the radical imagination there's a beautiful bit in Trotsky um, in uh, not literature and revolution it's culture and socialism where he speaks about what would man be come the revolution and this is a really intriguing prospect because uh, one of the challenges this is almost like an apology for why Marx isn't more prescriptive is that man will grow to the heights of an every individual he says will be an Aristotle a Goethe or a Marx just for our listeners who you know not me obviously wouldn't necessarily know exactly what he means by that okay so so <laughs> Uh, it's interesting. Someone said to me, "Oh, does that? But but you can't be that because that means some people wouldn't be Aristotle." But that, that's not what he means. That the, the promise of communism, in this sense, it's absolutely sincerely an Enlightenment project. Is that every individual could be as prolific as Goethe? Right. As, as so it's about genius. It's about genius, and actually, why that term isn't an elite term, but is but is really something that we can all attain to. And then he goes on to, uh, and in the post eugenic age, it's problematic to read this, but he speaks about how all of the arts will refine us. Everyone will be able to dance elegantly. We will listen to Beethoven as sensitively as we know Lenin liked to, but Lenin didn't want to listen to it because it made him soft. And, and, and we will all be as attuned to the beauty of art and art will help refine us. And not in some crude, you know, art will make a political point that we then, you know, can use as a slogan, but that art is, is a communion with the sacred and that... It, it's a nurturing of the human soul and that man doesn't live by bread alone. Yes, you know, the Bolsheviks will give you bread. And actually, unlike Stalin's socialist realism, what some of what Trotsky was gesturing at, although never fulfilled, was the idea that art would be able to nurture the soul. Yeah. And that and that I'm awed by the possible and I'm awed by the romanticism of that. When you encounter something that you feel sublime, whether it's in Chart Cathedral or in a piece of Beethoven, do is the concept of God relevant in that, or is it um, 
Let's just drop the G bomb. What do you think yeah, about no, God? The concept of the divine is relevant. Okay. I think last time I saw you, I I I hurriedly, I hurriedly uh, sort of quoted some some Blake, which influenced me uh, quite a lot. But I'm not, but no, and certainly like the idea of the I mean the idea of that I am um, or that the listener is. On almost, I guess, like an anti- antennae, like uh, listening into a wavelength that of of the imagination of another person. I think that's a, that's a really sort of beautiful possibility. Yeah. Um, and that's when you know I'm always very wary of readings of art that are that are too excessively personal. Actually, you know, this book spoke to me, therefore it has merit only because it spoke to me. I think that's yeah. actually a sort of bit of 20th first century uh, uh, a sort of trap. Um, but there is something beautiful about being able to commune down the ages with other imaginations. Mm. And of course, in communing isn't only agreeing fully; um, it's being able to see the trap. Yeah. Um, yeah, I saw no. So in the Blake puts the words into the prophet Isaiah. I saw no God nor heard any in a finite organical perception. In other words, I didn't see God outside of yeah. me, uh, but my senses discovered the infinite in everything. As and as I was uh, persuaded that the voice of honest indignation is the voice of God, I care not for the consequences in God. And one of our first uh, discussions, you know, the voice of honest indignation is the yeah. voice of God. What a what a brilliant line this is in the Twitter age. I mean, firstly. Honest indignation, not dishonest, yeah. or not, not playing you know, to your base. Not playing to your base, but also how true that is. Like the voice of on that when we express disgust or horror at mass inequality in such a sort of developed society, or even for me, I sort of think that the purpose of politics is to get us to a place where politics doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. The purpose of politics is to get us to a place where every individual can refine her or his soul through art and through spiritual communion that that's the purpose of politics politics is a means to an end never the end in itself honest the voice of honest indignation is the voice of god you know if we can hear that voice within ourselves i like that and i'm not and 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 that doesn't mean i don't want to speak about god in the bible i think god in the bible is a fascinating character and he he has some virtues and some vices and it's a wonderful story and i'm gonna be you know sort of and have you always felt comfortable with the label atheist or have you gone through different self-identification i would probably call myself a jewish humanist okay uh, although probably spiritually tending towards the pagan but I think it's a problem. We, you, you were very sort of articulate last time we met on, on, on the crisis of sort of atheism. Obviously, new atheism was a bad moment. I know you've done a podcast on this recently. New atheism was a really sort of um, disillusioning moment, I think, in, in, how, in how hollow it seemed and how, as you, I think, correctly said, it was, you know, all ideologies, you could argue, or, or they were they're fighting past battles, and it seems that new atheists were maybe fighting a sort of 17th century battle yeah. or maybe a late 19th century battle. And actually, the role of atheism in the age of neoliberalism might be to provide an image, a sort of coherent humanistic image in which um, we can realise human possibility and we can identify the the things that are holding humans back so absolutely 17th century late 19th century you could argue that things holding humans back are the establishment of the church and that needs to be fought now liberals need to identify what's holding humans back that isn't the church anymore that you know neoliberalism and how do you combat that and so the role of humanist humanism and atheists absolutely has to be about realizing human dignity and we can speak about that in sort of spiritual terms if you want and realizing human possibility and what are the things um 
you know, deframing that. And materialism is definitely one of those things. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's one of the things I think comes up every so often is, and I'll, I'm talking to Andrew Copson in a few weeks from the Humanist UK, who, you know, um, I know well. But one of the frustrations I have that I speak to him about is the sometimes negative framing of humanism as tearing down the privilege of religion and there, you know there's some things that I can completely understand why they irritate people but someone like Pippa Evans from the Sunday Assembly who yeah. who is really trying to find a more positive space without God because you know she she's brought up in the church she says I miss God I wish I believed in God but I don't so I, I'm going to build a place where we can try and have some of the virtues of those yeah. communities that seems to me to be much more hopeful um, and productive um, why do you think atheism can or perhaps has got stuck into this critical mode? Uh, maybe because it thought that God was the really important part of that formula. I'm not sure that God is the important... I know we've had a disagreement on this yeah. before. I'm not sure that God is the important part of that formula. I think that that social communion... So for sort of... So my, my partner's kind of converting to Judaism, and so as part of that process, we... Um, we started going to synagogue uh, at, towards the end of last year. No, 2016. And um, it was in the dark days of post-Trump and Brexit. And it's a very liberal, radical sort of environment. And it was just very nice once every weekend to spend some time not engaging in a materialist public sphere of exchange. Like, it's just actually very nice, you know. To, and I don't want to be reductionist about that. Everyone should go to singing groups and therefore yeah. that that will be fine. It's, thing, yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not about that. But I think that... Um, I think it's so revealing about the shortcomings of supposedly this atheist triumph, supposedly this liberal triumph, that people are so spiritually starved that they're like, maybe that maybe the place is to go to these, you know, old establishments. I mean, you know, where are the humanists talking about, you know, uh, uh, I mean, temples of meaning, temples of love? I'm absolutely, as a humanist, I want to speak about a temple of meaning. I want to speak about what it means to construct a place where we pay homage to not just the human need to, I mean you have Johan Hari's book on, on this and he's, it's actually where it's really good is on on materialism and how you know as as individuals we we suffer from being so disconnected yeah I mean like you know if you don't build a temple of meaning people will go back to old temples and um, and so that my response to uh you know, a lot of this sort of atheist griping is to say this is completely. You have to own this failure. This was this is this is your failure, mm-hmm. and this was a late twentieth century failure. You were able to build successful welfare states, but you left nothing to the soul. And the irony is that many of the people who built the welfare states, like Keynes, knew exactly that the purpose of this political structure was so that when he speaks about leisure time, Keynes doesn't mean people you know laying about. Leisure time was was in an old Victorian sincere liberal way was periods where you know Anna Trotsky you were going to refine your soul yeah. and if 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 liberals and humanists failed to do that that's their failure it's not yeah. religious failure there was of course enormous Christian theological influence in the founding of the welfare state which of my course, colleague Nick Spencer will write on in an upcoming way um, I'm going to ask you one last question which is um, uh, a way of giving a couple of book recommendations really we spoke yeah. on the way in about the minister and the murderer which I'm yeah. going to try and review and is a is a, a wonderful book by a literary critic about everything really kind of faith and crime and sin and injustice strange non-fiction meditation um, I'm also reading As a God Might Be which we've reviewed on the Theos website um, which is again a novel uh, this time but about faith and 
A few members of the team have picked up in the last year a sense of something maybe shifting in the literary environment after it felt like a long series of decades since we'd had mainstream writing, whether non-fiction or fiction, about or around or even understanding faith. Uh, you had Marilyn Robinson and really mm. that was about it. Mm. Um someone who writes a lot about literature do you sense something changing do you think i'm being too negative about what's been before no i think the state of publishing is is um i mean inevitably it's going to pick up and to a certain extent reflect on this spiritual yearning i mean i do think whether whether uh, the publishing environment has fully understood and acknowledged what i would say I don't want to say that everyone's spiritually yearning for more, although yeah. I do see a lot of that. Yeah. And I do think that a lot of agents and editors um, maybe don't, or publishers maybe yeah. don't acknowledge, or maybe they don't acknowledge how much people are yearning, because people are... Uh, it's ironic in the age where everyone's very keen to say what they feel, that actually, yeah. maybe because we don't have a vocabulary for spiritual yearning in a humanist yeah. sense. And because, you know, anything that looks or smells religious is a bit suspect. Yeah. No, I think that's right. You know, there's a bit, there's a bit in Shelley where he speaks about why Greek, ancient Greek civilization is so sophisticated, and that's that the, 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 what the pagan gods gave, and this is a critique partly of monotheism, is it gave an expression to very plural spiritual feelings, and that one of the things that you get in confessional social media, actually, you don't get people, even if they're spiritually literate, necessarily saying, you know status update today i am spiritually yearning as i walk through the temples of yeah. mercantile you know materialism I, I i think actually um that's an opportunity for and obviously poetry does that so yeah. i mostly read poetry which is why yeah. you, you know uh obviously i'm in the 0.1 percent <laughs> able to do that but like um yeah i would like to see more of that i would like to see more of that benjamin i feel like i could talk to you all day but i'm very grateful for the conversation that we have had thank, thank you. you very much Thank you for listening to The Sacred. I really hope you enjoyed it. And I do hope that you're listening to our previous episodes. Do follow us on Twitter at sacred underscore podcast. You can tell me directly what you thought at Theos Elizabeth. And you can find out more about our work at Theos at theostthinktank.co.uk.